Welcome everybody to this uh, seminar and debate uh, on Mozambique and Mozambique's uh, debt crisis and the implications of, uh, of this. Uh, my name is uh, Johan Heimstad. I'm the director of the Norwegian Council uh, for Africa. And I'm very glad to be cooperating uh, with uh, the Spanish International, Texas Network, and, uh, and uh, Schmuck. Uh, network Dutch, for Dutch is Norway. Dutch is Norway. <laughs> yes. Uh, for this uh, uh, this seminar, uh, we're very glad, very glad to have uh, distinguished and very very knowledgeable knowledgeable guests for this debate. And not least, I can see also in the audience. So I look forward to uh, a very interesting uh, uh, panel discussion, but also hopefully a bit of an exchange both during the seminar and, and of course after. Uh, so I think I'll, I'll just sort of uh, set you guys off, and uh, first we'll have an introduction by Ruth von Fissel from Transparency in Norway. So please, thank you. Yes. Give my Abraham. Thank you very much. So, on behalf of uh, Transparency International Norway, it's a great pleasure, of course, to be co-organizer of this event together with the uh, Council of Africa, Tax Justice, uh, Debt Justice Norway, and uh, special thanks to Johan and Hilda, who has made it all possible. You know, they did all the hard work in advance, so thanks. Um, also, we are delighted to have Adriano Mubongo here as keynote speaker. Uh, Adriano has until recently led the Center for Public Integrity, SIP, which is the accredited national chapter of Transparency International in Mozambique. So, you know, the national chapters of TI focuses on corruption and anti-corruption with a strong call for transparency in our respective countries. And at the same time, we are part of an international network of chapters around the world. The title of this seminar is The Crisis of Mozambique, Who Will Pay the Bill? Corruption seems to be an underlying problem of many challenges in the country, and lack of transparency and accountability of state institutions presents serious challenges to the country's governance and equitable distribution of resources. And so I have read your paper <laughs> and found that um, you actually made an estimate of the cost of corruption in the country, which says the amount of 4.9 billion US dollars between 2004 and 2014, which is huge, and it's increasing, I guess. And the country is ranked number 153 out of 180 countries of the Corruption Perception Index, which is published by Transparency International. As pointed out in a recent study from U4 and CMI, corruption can be both a source and a driver of illicit money flows in Mozambique. So uh, lack of transparency seems to have been a major problem related to entering into the illegal loan deals by the government of Mozambique. And the two bank, uh, uh, banks, Credit Suisse and VTB, but also in the government's management of the debt crisis after the odious debt was a fact. And it is the people of the country, I understand, who is actually paying for this in threefold, according to a recent study by the Jogia Debt Campaign. So the debts have become very large. 
But since we are addressing these challenges here in Oslo, of course the question many of us have is how does this relate to Norway? What are the relations to Mozambique? The links between the two countries are many. But let's start with the Norwegian Pension Fund. And its investment in Credit Suisse, which is one of the banks behind the loans. The Norwegian Pension Fund is the second larger investor in Credit Suisse and has, from such a perspective, a link to the scandal in Mozambique. However, as far as we know, the Norwegian government has not yet demonstrated any responsibility vis-à-vis Credit Suisse, let alone responded to the call for withdrawal of its investment in the bank, which came from, I know, a tax justice network. And, as pointed out by Theo in um, Death Justice and others, it's not fair that Norway indirectly make a profit on such behavior by the banks. It is therefore an expectation that Norway, as an investor, make an effort to clean up. But what about the business sector? <coughs> Mozambique is a potential market for Norwegian companies, uh, both in the gas sector and renewable energy. But seen through the lenses of an anti-corruption movement, therefore, is all the more important to practice zero tolerance for corruption, both in legal and ethical terms, and to apply it um, in all business relations, including the supply chain, which is, of course, easier said than done in any country, but especially in a country which has such challenges. So, um, uh, of course, it means that businesses need to have, you know, anti-corruption programs, including risk assessments, due diligence, do all the right things, uh, very diligently. In short, protect their business against active as well as passive corruption. Then there is the third element, and that's aid. And um, we have long traditions um, with Mozambique in aid. Budget support is currently put on hold. Whereas other important initiatives continues, such as the Oil for Development program, and it's hoped that this program can be helpful to the country in terms of their uh, management of the uh, gas sector. Um, to which extent is Norwegian authorities clear on this policy of zero tolerance for corruption, and willing and able to address some of the structural problems related to the high level of corruption in the country? Well. Um, political dialogue on good governance and democratic development happens simultaneously with foreign investments and private sector development. But, as pointed out by Asla Kodja and Helge Rønning in their excellent um, political economy analysis of Mozambique, Norwegian development aid to Mozambique takes huge risks if it commits large aid resources to their current regime before it has signaled clearly and credibly that it aims to establish transparency and accountability in governance, it says. <coughs> so the question is, how clear are those signals from the Norwegian government, and especially now that the current president of Mozambique, uh, Philip Nuyusi, is here? We'll see. Uh, from what I've seen from press releases and media coverage today, I haven't seen much of that effect, mm. but who knows what they talk about behind the closed doors. Anyway, so with, uh, with uh, these words, I'm very happy to refer <coughs> to Nina Egensen from Kistan Sokre to lead us through the seminar.
as moderator. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, and thank you for inviting me to be the moderator. And I'm very happy to be that because um, I have a huge space, space in my heart for Mozambique. I totally fell in love with the country when I moved there in 2005. I was supposed to be there for one year and I ended up living there for six years. Um, and I fell in love with the friendly, easygoing people, the beautiful, unspoiled beaches, the art, the music, the Marabenta, the Timbila, MC Rogers, uh, and not the least, the Matapa, Chicken Piripiri, and the best tiger prawns in the world. Uh, I also had a feeling at the time, um, I had a feeling of great optimism. The economy was growing 7, 8, 9% a year. New fancy buildings were popping up everywhere. New soccer stadium, new airport, new bridges, new fancy hotels. Uh, everything seems to be on the right track also in other areas like education, health. Um, the donor countries, they just love Mozambique. It was like the golden example of how aid is working and so on. And, and even the old col uh, col uh, how do you say it? The colonists, yeah? The old colonists, the old uh, masters from Portugal, they were coming back with a hat in their hand begging for work because there was a euro crisis going on. So in a way, Mozambique was like, the promised land. I even myself wrote an article about uh, Mozambique for NRK, the Norwegian Broadcasting, and it was like a, a financial boom, you know, Mozambique is booming. Uh, and then, um, but then, in 2016, it all collapsed, like um, House of Cards, it was said. Uh, the so-called secret loans, they were not secret anymore, and um, the debt scandal hit the country like a bomb. And that's what the topic is today. So, um, what happened? That's the question. How will Mozambique be able to solve the crisis that the debt scandal created and move ahead? And who should pay the bill? What is Norway's role in this? And um, what is the situation in uh, Mozambique right now? Let's look at that first. And um, Adrian Nobunga, he was already well, partly introduced for, for, for your work in, in SIP, but also you are now um, the director of the leadership and development think tank, Association Desenvolvimento Isosbet, right? Yes, and you are still the chair of SIF and uh, also a senior lecturer in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at uh, Eduardo Monlana University uh, in Maputo. So please um, let us uh, have a feeling of what's going on in Mozambique right now. What is the situation right now? Yes, please, please. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, Adrian is my name, and thank you very much uh, for being here. Uh, uh, I was given 10 minutes, 
um, but I'll illustrate um, to explain a bit um, this uh, uh, shift um, from CIP. People were asking me, uh, why are you leaving SIP? Uh, it's simple. The, the theory of change, the anti-corruption uh, theory of change, uh, as uh, vocally elaborated by TI, Transparency International, that transparency, it will lead um, on the one hand, um, for people to get shocked and to act, and on the other hand, the accountability institutions uh, to take action, that is not happening in Mozambique. Simple, um, the most important, or perhaps the only institution in my country is Frelimo, and Frelimo is the former liberation movement. Um, people take for granted, I was uh, in Ghana uh, yesterday talking, people take for granted the, this animal of uh, a former liberation movement turned into government. Um, the way they, um, uh, they shape the, the political economy of the country um, is that of is that the sense of belonging, of entitlement? Um, the questions uh, President Gebuza, the former president, used to ask me every time uh, we met, is where were I in six so 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 when he was crossing the river facing crocodiles to free the country? So today to expose him in corruption, etc. So this is the feeling uh, they have. Um, and I had an expectation that the ongoing generational change, it would impact um, strongly that and, and be the, the break. Um, we expected that in the two last elections. That did not happen or at the pace that we expected that to happen. We all know the story. Um, new actors will come in, but the dynamics, the characteristics, the manifestations of corruption or of the state capture by Frelimo we all know that. So the work we were doing at SIP, um, it, it became like identifying um, uh, the new actors, uh, but the characteristics, uh, the patterns, they were clear. One aspect though, it was not clear. Uh, you mentioned the study on the cost of corruption. Methodologically, we estimated what was taken out of, um, from this uh, taken um, using 
the basic concept of corruption, um, the, the, the taking of state assets for private, for private gain. That's what we have quantified. And that's what that start speaks about. But one fundamental aspect that we, we never discussed at SIP is um, the other side of it. Um, corruption itself, or anti-corruption itself, it is not a developmental um, um, discourse. It's about what is taken out um, for private gain. But we started to look at what about development uh, that is alienated due to the fact that the, the Frelim leaders, they are busy distributing what is available from uh, direct foreign direct investment on the one hand and from aid. So the, um, the state of the arts is about what's available to be distributed. So there is no um, thinking uh, in developmental terms on the one hand and more importantly uh, as civil society people we, we never engaged independent critical Frelimo on what about development. So and given the current context where um, it's more about action than really about understanding what the issue is. Um, we, um, in the movement, we made the decision that um, uh, some of the work that SIP is doing <coughs> need to be split. One is the um, purely anti-corruption work, transparency, um, more uh, journalistic oriented type of investigation to expose um, uh, corruption but the other is twofold one is uh, to engage the youth to engage the youth um, in, a, in a constructive manner The, although it is curtailed, but generational change is taking place. So that needs to be um, uh, uh, critical, but constructively um, uh, really guided um, or factored into the governance uh, equation. Um, but on the other is to hold the Frelim accountable on developmental terms. So as I speak today, um, well, I'm a foreigner here, huh? <laughs> um, but since this is a uh, is a it's a, it's, a, it's a Western nation, I can I can feel comfortable to speak, um, and this I convey this message to my president. So it's not new that uh, one way of um, a leadership failure, which is more broader 
than corruption. Leadership failure. Which is the manifestation of that is the current situation where <coughs> Frelim is muddling through the situation without a clear uh, strategy. It's like a pilot um, uh, flying a, a plane, not knowing how much fuel he or she has, and no clear direction where he or she is going. So it is a day-by-day -day governance. We have expected that um, President News would be courageous enough to do the right thing. And he knows what the right thing is. He has said to choose between uh, sacrificing the people and uh, going after those who have ruined the country. He knows that. He made the decision to uh, safeguard the cohesion of the party and to sacrifice the people. This is obvious. You may call it the way you want, but in every country where that happens, that's a clear sign of, of failed of leadership. No government should sacrifice the people, no matter what that, that option is. But they have simply decided that. They have uh, decided to mortgage uh, gas, which, and here, I blame the donors. I hope some of them are here. I blame the donors. <laughs> some uh, five years ago, we, as civil society, we convened meetings and said the, the government of this country um, is starting to voice the message that um, Mozambique is rich and that in the near future they will not need aid, which is not true. But the way the international speculators are conveying the message they easily buy it. So the donors should have exercised the right, um, uh, uh, should have told the right message that what you have is not oil, it is gas, which needs massive investments, and with it the uncertainty as to the revenues. Donors failed to do that. Not only failed to do that, I'm happy the, from Noradio here. Not only failed to do that, but most fundamentally, they failed to engage Mozambique's government on something we called a phasing out plan. You need a phasing out plan. Our relationship with Norway, for instance, it started before I was born. Now I'm 44. So, I mean, oh, oh, you as Norwegian country, you should have said, look, we have found resources, we need to start, no matter the timelines. 15 years, fine, but we need to start um, a gradual phasing out plan to move from aid to business. 
in a, a constructive manner. If I asked you today, do you have such a plan? No, you don't have. So you failed uh, to do that. Uh, so our government, they quickly moved from a situation of Donna Darling into um, gas boom led by spe international speculators, not by the right people, not from the right advice that should have um, been um, conveyed by the donors using your own experience. I recognize the greedy of our government. I recognize that, but your role was not well, um, not well played. So we quickly moved from a boom, which was a boom, uh, was not a proper boom, because there has never been <coughs> oil money or gas money there. No. Some of the money that was circulating was <coughs> illegal money. Illegal money. You know it. Number one. Number two, corruption money that enabled that boom that you have described. Donors knew this, but because they were, um, um, it was nice to tell the story that aid succeeded, they let it happen. So, uh, this is the situation today. Then, um, President New says, I will not sacrifice the party, I will sacrifice the people. Again, that is not sustainable. I, I can understand how the IMF can let this go. It is simply not sustainable. The IMF, you are also IMF. You can tell the IMF not to let this go. It is simply not sustainable. As it is now, um, there is a two-train um, uh, um, module by any um, to, to take off. Mozambique would need, um, from the start of uh, revenues, would need 10 years with everything right. But with illicit financial flaws associated with all this, it would take 15 years to pay the 2 billion. Um, if you bring the other two, with only one loan, if you bring the other two, I would then die before um, my country starts to benefit of the revenues of us. That is not sustainable. That is simply not sustainable. So the option that government has put uh, up front, it, it's a no solution. It's a no solution. And I'm, I'm, I'm really disappointed. I'm really disappointed. My president came here. Um, from the media, you are not asking 
the questions that you know that have to be asked. You want to promote business. That will not happen simply because the country will not be sustainable. Even before the Freeliman Renamo conflict, it is properly settled. There are new sports of conflicts. In, in up north. So what peace are you talking about? I, I, I will... Uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm a foreigner. I didn't intend to offend anyone. But I, I, I will stop here for the time. Thank you. So just a factual um, piece of information. Uh, Adria, why, why don't you... Do you want to just keep sitting here? Yeah? Um, the press, I belong to the press. <laughs> and uh, we, we didn't get any interviews with the president. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I tried, believe me, I tried. Yeah. If you allow me a small footnote. Yeah. <laughs> yes, really a small one. Since he is in power, yeah. he never responded to a single question from a journalist in my country. Mm. He only gives the statements. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, you built your country because your governments were held accountable by the media. Mm -hmm. But he has never convened a single press yeah. conference to yeah. ask unexpected questions from journalists. Yeah. Yeah. This is not right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was no, a I was, well, I was allowed to ask one question. It was like... A, press meeting where we were actually told that we could not ask any questions but uh, then we were allowed to ask one question and it was I, I must admit that it was difficult in that setting to just ask so what about these loans who, who are going to pay you know it, it was but I asked about the gas money I asked um, when and how uh, is the people of Mozambique going to see the fruits of the gas, come taste the fruit, benefit from the fruits. That's that's what I asked him, and he promised that the gas would go to schools and <laughs> hospitals and roads and so on. Anyways, I'm not the one to be speaking. Uh, I would like to introduce the next uh, uh, speaker, Thea Sofia Justin Grasberg, political um, scientist and political advisor at the Death Justice Norway. And I, I believe you will talk a little bit about the global systems for responsible lending and borrowing. And I'm not sure if this was the case yeah. when it comes to Mozambique. Please. Thank you. I will uh, see it as well. Uh, Death Justice Norway, we work uh, primarily on <coughs> debt-related issues and global systems for responsible lending and borrowing, and also um, bettering the systems for um, cleaning up the mess when a debt crisis happens. And in this case, uh, I think yeah, I want to highlight the, uh, the, the combination of Mozambique's issue being both general and particular. And the general aspect uh, is uh, that after the financial crisis in 2008, we've seen a lending boom to uh, emerging markets or developing countries, especially in the last five years, um, due to very like, historically low interest rates, 
and large quantitative easings. Um, uh, borrowing money has been extremely cheap, <laughs> almost free. And um, the surplus uh, of money, especially in uh, private uh, banks and investors, has gone uh, rapidly to bonds. So there's been like a, um, a state a debt boom the last five years, primarily, primarily through bonds. And Mozambique uh, has been in the same sort of wave as other developing countries. Um, the latest um, numbers from the IMF was that now uh, 31 out of 67 low-income countries are either in debt distress or in high risk of debt distress. And it's been a, a doubling in the last five years. So it's been a very rapid deterioration of uh, that sustainability. Uh, so that's sort of Mozambique in the more general picture. And um, the sad thing is that many of these countries that are now in debt distress or in high risk are also the same countries that got um, uh, debt deleted through the heavily indebted poor countries initiative uh, roughly 15 years ago. Um, uh, Mozambique was one of them. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the HIPIC, the Heavily Indebted Poor Countries Initiative, was a success in the sense that uh, many developing countries uh, uh, got uh, cut their um, uh, state debt uh, to a very sustainable level. And that also sort of built uh, up under the, the optimism that we saw um, in the years after the, um, these cuts happened. And um, unfortunately, um, the campaign that advocated for debt relief uh, had two goals. It was debt relief, and the other one was bettering the systems for responsible, responsible lending and borrowing to ensure that the same thing didn't happen again. But we lost momentum for part two when the debt was cut, because then there was a general sense that, oh, the problem's solved, the debt's gone, it's not, not going to be a problem again, you know? <laughs> Obviously, it would. Uh, and now, only 15 years later, we've gone on the same uh, boom and bust cycle again. So we are hoping this time that there's going to be a lot bigger political momentum for actually creating a more global system for responsible lending and borrowing that will actually ensure responsibility from both lenders and borrowers because it's the shared responsibility that's the key to uh, the sustainability and to... Uh, responsibility in lending um, and also when it comes to Mozambique more like particularly of course there's uh, big issues with um, corruption and hidden loans and all that and I think as Norwegians uh, we can see this the flip side of the coin where also the Norwegian government pension fund is uh, the, uh, the last number I saw is we're the third largest owner in Credit Suisse and uh, we are not assuming a responsibility, uh, neither are the Mozambique government. And then um, um, we can go into more detail in the, in the talk so that I don't uh, have a too long monologue. But uh, we've um, <coughs> been working on the Mozambique case towards pension fund for the last couple of years. And there's uh, not much happening, <laughs> basically. In 2016, Credit Suisse was uh, uh, reported to the ethical committee. We still don't know if there were actually a case going on or whether there's been a, um, uh, what do you call it, <laughs> if they have asked the fund to, to pull out or not. It's never been disclosed. Uh, but we had a meeting with 
the fund this year, this spring, and I can't say who said it, but somebody quite uh, high at the top said that uh, Credit Suisse is one of the largest investment banks in Europe and we're going to be invested in Credit Suisse for generations to come. That was the message. <laughs> so we didn't really understand what to make of that message because does it mean that there is no process or does it mean that um, there has been a process and it's uh, shelved in a drawer or somewhere? Or uh, uh, is, there no politic is there no will uh, to put Credit Suisse to uh, accountability? So, uh, but we have a meeting with the ethical committee tomorrow, so probably maybe we'll have some more answers. Thank you. Uh, so, Helgeda, um, I'm sure you are, you love Mozambique as much as I do, and you've lived there even longer, through more periods, even from when the peace agreement was happening in 92 and so on. So, uh, a great expert on Mozambique, um, Professor Emeritus at the University of Oslo, worked and lived in Mozambique for years. And, um, I would like you to tell from your perspective actually this secret loans, how, how could it happen? And, um, and also like who was it? Was it the Credit Suisse, the international like bank predators or was it inside Mozambique the biggest mistake was done? And also what is Norway uh, doing in all this? Please. You can stand up if you want, or you can sit. Uh, well, um, first of all, uh, thank you for letting me talk. And uh, secondly, uh, I assume that some of you have read the article that uh, Asla Koyle and I wrote, which was published on Africa.no today and uh, also in Dagblade today, which is partly an answer to how this could happen, but I'll try to elaborate on a few points. Uh, I'll start with the issue that uh, Adriano took up in relation to what kind of animal is the dominant party state of Mozambique because I think that is essential in order to understand how the loans could be taken up and how what happened afterwards could happen. Uh, Mozambique is not unique in being a dominant party state where there is this very close relationship between the state, the party and business. And which is a dominant party state because while there are three elections, there is one party that always wins the elections. By how the question is of course how free are the elections, but they win. And I often say that there are two types of these dominant party states, and I've done some research into this. And there are what I call the first generation dominant party states. Those are dominant party states that came out of uh, anti-colonial armed struggles in the 70s. And Mozambique, Flehimov is one, MPLA in Angola is another, Sana PF in Zimbabwe is the third, Etc. And I think to a certain degree ANC belongs to that as well. When they came out of the struggle and then started building the state, they saw the state as theirs. And they also instigated one-party states in order to keep the state as theirs. And then when the multi-party state came into being, and in Mozambique it came into being after a long civil war, 
which was very bloody and very terrible for people of Mozambique. And uh, the opposition, uh, the anti-government forces were to quite some degree supported by other in South Africa and Rhodesia before Rhodesia became Zimbabwe. So this was a situation. Then the multi-party state was introduced and the anti-government guerrilla movement became the opposition party, which meant that there were two armed struggle movements, none of which were really democratic, that should form democratic governments and a democratic uh, political situation. This was, of course, incredibly challenging. And then, from there on, Frelimo has been sitting on the state, on the business, and on the party. And it, I usually say that in Mozambique we have a situation where there is not a president that has a party, it's a party that has a president. And it's the party that sort of controls what the president is going to do. And one of the reasons why Niuzi does not answer questions is because he's not allowed to do so by the party. He is sort of caught between the various factions of the party. And the various factions of the party, they would rather have a weak president than a president who belongs to one of the dominant factions. And to listen to Niuzi is to listen to someone who does not really control the stage on which he is. And it was very striking in the last elections to watch the two opponents. On the one hand, Makama from Renamo, who was a very charismatic guy. I, don't, I didn't like him very much, but he was charismatic. And he made people laugh at their rallies, etc. Niuzi was rambling and couldn't really engage with his, uh, with his audience. And that is part of the problem. We have a leadership in this state that is not really the leadership of the state. The leadership is behind the scenes. And that explains also why could the loans be taken up in the first place. The loans were taken up, and I do disagree with you, that the crisis really, the collapse really started was in 2016. I think the collapse was probably in 2013, when the loans were taken up and we first heard about the Matum. And the re first time I heard about the Matum was actually when I was in Paris in 2013. And I read in the Monde that Mozambique had bought 28 tuna fish trawlers from a Dwarf in Cherbourg, and then I thought, why? How can Mozambique buy 28 tuna fish trawlers? And then that was how it happened. And then it sort of, after that, it was revealed more and more. But the loans, they were taken up from within the leadership in the state and Frelimo in order to grease the palms of those who were part of this system. So loans were a collusion between international lenders, as you were talking about, who were eager to, to lend money to willing borrowers, and then a corrupt state. And $500 million of the loans that were given to the state are unaccounted for. The question is, where are the $500 million? It's not where the rest of the loans are. Where are the 500 million? Which were revealed in the report that the government of Mozambique finally allowed to be done 
by the Kroll, uh, uh, Kroll Accountant Firm, which was paid for not by IMF, not by the government of Mozambique, but which was paid for by the Swedes. They paid for the investigations. The Kroll report has yet to be publicized. It's only the, only the executive summary that has been publicized. And this is, of course, because the people who are responsible are named in the report itself. So we have to look at what kind of syndicate is sitting here and looking at this. So this is a collusion, in my opinion, between international lenders and a corrupt government. And we have to look at it from that perspective. And then now what's happening to loans in Mozambique, of course, the lenders are now very willing to give more money to Mozambique because they do so in the prospect of no new money coming in through the gas explorations. But there is also one other lender which no one talks about in this context, and that is China, which is extremely important in relation to raising the loan level of Mozambique because they lend money in order to build infrastructure with Chinese firms doing all the work. For instance, on the bridge about the uh, Maputo Bay, which was opened five days ago. So this is part of an international context where it's very easy to focus on the Western banks. But we also have to look at the role of the Chinese generation. And this means that the government of Mozambique is now being sitting in a pressurized situation between the Western banks on the one hand and the Western investors in, in the gas fields and the Chinese who are invested in the infrastructure. Now they're building an airport in of all places, Shai Shai, which is two hours drive from Maputo. Who's, who's gaining that? Who's gaining from that? Well, then the, question, the next question is, what about, what about, where, what are we going to do about the money that is supposedly going to come from the gas, the gas explorations? When they will come is very unclear. It's also unclear when the gas explorations will really start. This is also part of the problem. There is no, as of now, no activities that are clear and concrete building activities have taken place. There are lots of intended and uh, signed intentional agreements, but there is no gas that has started flowing except from, uh, from uh, Vilankulus, which is on land, not offshore. And the reason for that is, of course, that the, Investors are waiting to see how much they can get out by waiting out and pressurizing the government to give them more and more concessions in order to pay for it. And I think that has to do again, what kind of concessions is the government willing to give to the explorers? That's a question which has to be taken out, up, and I do think it's a question that the donors should take up with, with the Mozambican government. And then the next question is, what role of the distribution of the 
possible income from the gas. I think that there is a very great likelihood that Mozambique will end up being, and Oslak and I write about that, that it will happen the same thing to Mozambique as happened to, Mozambique, to Angola. It will be part of what is called the resource curse. There is a certain group of people, an elite in the society, that will benefit and will become rich, and particularly with the political disposition in, in, uh, in uh, Mozambique, there is a likelihood that people will remain poor. So the main issue is how are we going to distribute the possible income from the gas? Secondly, the reason why the loans are now being taken up is that it is what we have borrowed a term which we like very much, namely the pre-source curse. Money is being borrowed on the belief that there will be money coming back, and that sort of increases the curse of a possible late resource curse, and it's called the pre-source curse. And then finally, what can Norway do? I think Norway's engagement in Mozambique should have as its main <coughs> focus to try to reduce the negative effects that the exploration of Mozambique's vast natural resources may have on the country's governance. And that means that on the one hand, the cooperation should concentrate on creating a proper uh, administrative uh, framework which is open and transparent and taxable from those who, are, uh, those who benefit from the gas resources. And secondly, the cooperation should support those forces within the Mozambican society that will work for more transparency and that will particularly, say, some organizations in civil society, but particularly the press, which is very in a very precarious situation at the moment in Mozambique. There are threats against critical journalists all the time, and this is also very, very serious at the moment. So Norway should also support those forces that demand proper transparency in the country. That's what I have to say. Thank you, so I, I think uh, we can agree that the way the, this, this debt crisis seems to be solved at the moment is not the optimal uh, way. And uh, already being said, the people is paying the price. Um, I listen, when I listen to the three of you and I see the crowd here, it's like a completely different crowd from this morning where I went to, uh, to this uh, Norwegian African Business Associ Association, NABA. Uh, I heard the president speak, I heard representatives from um, different uh, private sector companies in Mozambique, EDM, Electricidad in Mozambique, etc. And I also heard Akir uh, Solution and a lawyer, Norwegian lawyer congratulating Mozambique on the progress that's been made in the gas fields and the new deals they've made and so on. And um, I, I've also been, been speaking to people from private sector and uh, well, this is now a little bit like the devil's advocate. What they say is, 
Well, they want the business to get going because that's good for the country. You know, they want investors to come there, and then they say, well, this all this negative focus from from the national press and so on, it doesn't exactly uh, create like good conditions for private sector in Mozambique to you know attract investors. So they say, well, we but we are picking up. They say private sector is picking up. It's going better now. They're trying to say that. And then they say, well, uh, I, I was in Mozambique two years ago and everybody was talking about the crisis and the loans and so on. And now they say, well, people in general don't talk about it anymore. They just want to deixar andar as coisas. They don't, um, they just want, they had their struggles before, they have their struggles now and they just want to move on. You know, they're fed up with the talk about the debts. So left in between those two is civil society. So you are like kind of, well, what I want to ask is if you feel that you're struggling kind of a lost case somehow, or uh, you know, you, you have all the right ideas about how this should be solved, but do really people in general in Mozambique care? Like what's their sentiment? Um, this is an important question. Um, when we started uh, to be vocal, to campaign against the debt, mm. the message was we don't want to pay the loans. They were illegal, they were um, uh, contracted um, at odds with the constitution, and the laws. So um, the citizens should not pay. This was the campaign. Mm -hmm. And then the reaction from the government was um, uh, strong, heavy-handed. Mm -hmm. Remember, um, it was in that context that a professor from the Edward Mondlane University, was abducted and he was shot, his mm. legs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then recently, um, a journalist um, also um, followed the same, um, the, um, uh, the same path. The, I can say, without a fear of mistake, that where it is now, is that of the the system i would say the system mm -hmm. um, is ready uh, to do harm to those who will stand strongly in the public in mozambique against the debt so whoever uh, stood and spoke strongly, particularly if that is aimed at mobilizing the people. So what you said that people, yeah, okay, um, they want to um, move. No, 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 no. People are simply afraid of following the same that happened to Professor McQuan and the journalists. Mm -hmm. 
those who can speak, I can speak, I'm here in, in Norway today. I can say whatever I want. Mm -hmm. Then I, it takes me a week before I go back home. So I know. Um, but um, from there, um, I couldn't speak the way I'm, I'm speaking. Um, I say so many things critical, but when it comes to the debt, um, it is not clear whether it is the previous regime or it is the current regime, which although they can massage it to say that they are different, but at the end of the day, it is the same. So, uh, yes. So they don't want this to be. And um, the Constitutional Council, civil society, has submitted an appeal to the Constitutional Council um, in order to nullify the uh, Parliament's ruling to recognize the legality of the loans. It has been two years now the Constitutional Council is silent. This is a strong message. When the Constitutional Council, with fully working judges, uh, they are silent, they are waiting for their terms to end and to go home, <laughs> they leave it. This is a strong message. With that said, the it has reached a point um, the way I see it. I don't think that they also believe that this is sustainable, that it will go the way they have proposed it. Um, it is simply not doable. I don't see this um, taking happening. The way they have proposing to restructure Emma Tomb mm -hmm. that will cost two billion. I mean people speak about these numbers. But these are, are frightening numbers. These are big, big numbers. And and list Mo Mozambique's economy is as small as fifteen uh, billion. So you cannot be talking about two billion dollars. Um, from uh, one single illegal loan as if you're talking about 15,000 metikaish. And there are two more illegal loans. And, and this one, they, they will be more severe simply because they were contracted by companies with direct link to the uh, state's um, security service. So at the end, and the, the, the foreign banks, they are getting away with it. Hmm. And they are having an extra um, uh, 500 million bonus. They are getting away with it. So the point I'm making is that um, it's going to be 2 billion for the Ematum. I expect more 4 from the other 2, 6, I don't see this happening, Prof. 
But, yeah. but, but you are you are saying that the, so all the gas money will go straight in there because as far as I understood it, they said five percent of the gas money will go to pay the loans. No, that is it, not that it, is it, not the case. Not the case. Mm. It, it's all the gas money will go into paying the loans, or and, will some and, and, of the and, gas money and I think go to the, the people? This is story. Mm. They're entertaining us, this story. Before the legal uh, debts, we were talking about the governance around monetization of gas. And we were saying at that time that if governance is not put right, Mozambique will not benefit the potential of harnessing um, what is there, it will not be the way we expect it. Just like the Sazo that is, is milking Mozambique to export gas to South Africa. If governance is not set right, Mozambique will not benefit. It was before we factor into that the illegal loans. With the illegal loans and the current structure of um, monetization, um, my point is um, the optimistic calculations suggest that the country, when um, revenues start, which obviously, because the contracts themselves, they are um, uh, the most unequal that I have seen in the region. So the contracts have their own problems. With all the risks um, factored, Mozambique would need, after production and revenues start, would need 10 years to pay the first um, illegal loan. The first. In a situation where all the money is given to the, uh, is given to the uh, bondholders. All Mozambique's revenue, Mozambique says, I will not take it, um, give it all would need 10 years. Then with the other two, no, I would die before Mozambique. That's what you said. Yeah. So, um, Teod, you want to comment? I just want to ask, um, so what if Mozambique said we are not paying the loans uh, because they were illegal, because it was against the constitution? So what if actually uh, your president said that, sorry, Credit Suisse and the other banks, we are not paying. You were the stupid ones who be, actually gave us be, the loans. Be, before, or gave the loans. Be, the, sorry, I'm gonna ask. Ah, oh, I'm okay. gonna ask her ah, okay. about okay. this because she wanted to comment. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Because just you know, uh, the international banking systems. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that uh, just a few comments on uh, the topics that we've uh, talked about. Um, I think that. Um, now the the debt to GDP ratio is 120 something, and I think yeah, yeah, so 130, and um, I think uh, entertaining the idea it's the that highest in Africa. yeah, and entertaining the idea that you're supposed to be able to grow out of that debt um, uh, percentage is is 
quite naive. I mean, it's a very, very large, when you start coming up, up to 60-70% of that to GDP, it starts to become unsustainable. So I think um, it's, it's a good idea or a good thought that we shouldn't be so negative and, oh, that's harming growth. But uh, to be realistic, uh, the debt would have to be restructured quite uh, hard uh, in order to be actually able to free up growth in the future and as you were saying also um, future revenue will be completely bound up to repaying these debts uh, but I, don't, I think regarding the legality I think that since Newsy has shown no uh, a will to put uh, political allies to uh, accountability I think he yeah, is in a very weak position to say uh, that uh, we will not pay these uh, illegitimate debts that were, were illegal. And um, I think it's, it's not very likely that that would happen in, in, the, in the sense that he's already under a lot of pressure to disclose more in information and he's protecting his own, his political allies, his party. So I think uh, he's in a very weak uh, position to put uh, hard, uh, you know, play the hard game. But um, yeah. Could you talk about the legal aspect of it? I mean, the political we understand. But I think the question was yeah. <clears throat> from a legal perspective, because that could be pursued by also other actors. That it wouldn't necessarily have to be only the government of Mozambique. Yeah. I think uh, within uh, the Mozambican context, it was definitely unlegal in the sense that the parliament was supposed to have uh, given the go on the loans uh, in in that. Uh, yeah, but but in a more global context, uh, there are very few. Um, uh, what is uh, there are few tools uh, in a judicial sense as to the legality of loans. There's more of a sense that. Uh, a government who takes up a loan is responsible legally for the loan and uh, when there is a new government they're equally responsible and in the end there's the population's going to pay. Yeah, what are you thinking Helge? Helge, you no. want to no, I, I think there are two aspects to this. If the loans are declared illegal in Mozambique, mm -hmm. that would mean that the public prosecutor would have to prosecute those who took up the loans. So yeah. that means that the former president Kubusa would have to be put on trial. Mm. That's the first element, and that is not going to happen, I think. Yeah. And the second part is that whether it's illegal to give those loans internationally, that will have to be pursued within an international framework. Mm. And that international framework was actually being pursued to a certain degree in London, but then it was dropped two days ago, so it was not made into a legal issue but to an ethical issue and that is part of the problem here. But it's clear that if Mozambique had declared, the parliament had declared its loans as being illegal, it would change the whole situation. But I'm, I don't believe that will happen. I think that what will happen is this restructuring will go on and go on. And that will be part of the problem. Uh, but I mean there are lots of people here whom I know, we know more about Mozambique. Yeah, than no, I, I would like to open the, the floor now. Yes, please. Uh, I'm pointing at you. Yeah, 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 sorry. There's another element here that goes both to, to the judicial and the political and economic as well. The aspect is that uh, if a country just simply refuses to pay their debts back, you risk uh, not getting any creditors in them. Exactly. And therefore, yeah. you're stuck with no credit at all in terms of getting new loans to. 
to either fund your uh, future investments that would create revenue or to to be able to pay your old debt. So it's it's always in their interest to to uphold the, the idea that they're able to, to actually pay their debt so they never admit to saying, oh, we're not paying it because you won't get any. Yeah. And also because the case has been dropped by the UK Financial Conduct Audit yeah. now, uh, it implies that the legality is not really a big issue, but the, the Jubilee Debt Campaign at least, mm -hmm. the, the British branch of our organisation is saying, okay, then we have to go look into British law and say, see uh, where are the gaps, because obviously this should have been mm -hmm. uh, illegal in the sense. But um, but for now, that's sort of like the standpoint that it's been dropped from a legal perspective. But does that mean that the name of Credit Suisse is also kind of being cleaned somehow? Or? I think that because the, the legal, legal perspective has been downplayed, uh, they're getting sort of off the hook with taking initiative to a new transparency system. Uh, because um, instead of sort of uh, uh, taking accountability for past mistakes, they're um, now taking initiative to a new uh, transparency system where banks would have to voluntarily disclose information on loans, but not old loans, only new loans. And uh, it's a voluntary disclosure. Uh, and, and, and some CSOs at least will say that this seems like sort of a smokescreen uh, from uh, averting attention away from not taking responsibility. But um, time will tell if it's going to be useful in any way. But yeah. Is there any collateral for the loans um, regarding, is it collateral in the natural resources or any other uh, asset? It's become as uh, government bonds. In only in uh, government bonds? Yeah, plus now. Not in the gas uh, no, resources? After, or after the last uh, proposed agreement, they will also pay $500 million as mm -hmm. With that will come from the gas income. Because what we see in other places is that they use the, the, the collateral as a, a way to get uh, the ownership of the natural resources. And that's yeah. the huge problem if you don't get along with the... Uh, but I mean, if the, the loan is legal, then you can uh, yeah. uh, risk the, 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 the natural resources themselves, which would mm. be, of course, a huge problem. Yeah. But, but what you said is very important because the national energy company, which is supposed to be party to this exploration, they don't have money to pay the introduction, yeah. uh, introductory fee into the, and so they had to borrow that on the international market and that's of course part of the problem they're faced with in order to be able to benefit from the gas. Mm -hmm. yes. I'd like to play devil's advocate a little bit. It was interesting talk. Um, first was at the beginning of the talk, there was this mention of, of uh, the Norgas Bank, I guess, profiting from, from this indirectly. But, and I'm surprised by that. I, like I can't remember where, when it was said, but just to understand the rationale for that comment, because hasn't the Credit Suisse share price dropped considerably? It's lost business. It's had to incur huge amounts of legal costs. So. I'm just interested as a foreigner here in Norway to hear these kind of comments because I'm like, if anything, they've lost enormously, so to speak, because this is not a good investment after yeah. the fact. And yeah, I'm, and that's so very that's interesting. My, my yeah. and, and then my, my, my second one is, I, I've heard rumours, I don't know, I don't know the details of this, but who, who is sitting on those bonds? 
Because when you when we talk about now after the fact about I've heard people talk about Credit Suisse and, and VTB Bank. They just issued the, and they arranged those bonds. But then what's important to also think about is who's sitting on them. And while I agree with the points that you've mentioned about putting um, the, 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 I guess, preliminary parties' uh, heads on the chopping block, um, hence the president is holding back on some of this. I've heard, and I don't know the truth behind all of this, that a lot of the domestic banks are holding those bonds. So if you are the president, I'm, I'm just this complete devil's advocate, if you're sitting there and you have to choose between the two and say, let's make this completely you know, illegal, let's not repay this ever, right? He's talking about losing on three different fronts. Mm -hmm. Whereas the option that he's following now is a kind of, ah, it, it's not a win-win, but it's like a win-lose situation because at least he keeps his party happy and so on. Like you said, he's a bit of a muppet in the sense that there's people in control below him. But he's also effectively also saving the domestic banks in the sense that some of the international creditors are going to take a haircut because they're not getting their 10%, they're getting 5 They haven't been paid for the last 2-3 years. But at the same time, he's not causing his entire like domestic banking system from collapsing that's sitting on those bonds. What, what would happen... I'm asking a question, what would happen if you did follow this course of action that we're hypothetically talking about, which you want him to follow, so to speak, from an ethical perspective, is the outcome going to be so much better? Do you know what I mean? Like, there, there's huge repercussions if, because the banks in, in Mozambique are very weak, they're very small, mm. they don't have any capital buffers. So if they're sitting on the majority of these bonds, even though I don't know whether they are, then you're talking about like Armageddon, right? Like these banks are then gone forever. So I'm just, I'm just questioning the whole. That's a good question. First of, first of all, the Swiss, uh, the Swiss bank and VTB, VTB, the Russian bank, they have sold the loans yeah. to other, other issuer of loans, which now sit on the bonds. And it's true that some of these bonds sit with the uh, national banks. These national banks, and that is part of, the, part of the situation, they are heavily integrated in the party-state business uh, configuration. And I quite agree, I mean, they, they are, in a way, caught in a situation where there's no way out. So I agree with you that. The question is, what, will, what are they going to do? Or what are they going to do? They can do as they have now been trying to do, sort of renegotiate the loans and losing out on that which they are. Because the pro probable money from the gas will not be going to Mozambique till another. The first uh, money, uh, the gas will start flowing probably in 23. There will no, not be any money coming into Mozambique before 1933 <coughs> because that will be paid to upholding both the creditors and the investors in the gas. And then the question is, how, when the money starts coming into Mozambique, how will it then be distributed? Will it be distributed to an, an elite, or will it be redistributed to uh, investments in development in the country? And that is, of course, also partly the problem which is facing the government, and also the international community in relation to Mozambique. What is the international community going to be 
demanding from Mozambique at the moment? Will they demand more transparency in relation to what is happening up in the north in the gas fields? How the business is being uh, conducted? What kind of taxes will the gas companies have to pay? And what will happen to the distribution of the possible income? That is the political question in relation to this. And then the question is, I do think that there should be Norwegian investment in Mozambique because Norwegian investment can, if it's being conducted in the right way, maybe partly be trying to develop a certain greater degree of transparency here. But it's of course a very difficult country to invest in. If you look at the ranking it has on the ranking of countries that it's easy to do business with, it's quite low down there. Um, so, so that is also part of the problem here. But I think that it's an impossible situation. Really, I agree with you. Yes. Um, well, uh, I, I slightly disagree. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I mean, we have to have a discussion. So, are you going to say Norwegian <laughs> companies should not invest in Mozambique? Yes. Uh, well, um, no, 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 In relation to your question, um, and I, I speak from um, a civil society perspective. The cost of the current uh, solution, um, it, I think it will take the country to the levels of the civil war in terms of um, institutional development. The, if as a nation we failed to make a proper use of this crisis to get things right, I see the country derailing, you know, um, getting out from the uh, railway into a situation of um, um, of collapse. Um, the, um, of course, um, two banks, they're Mozambique, small banks, they have bought these bonds. But they're small ones. And one of those is already under the intervention of the central bank. So I think um, uh, in, in, in financial terms, the existing assets, even the ones that um, are getting rotten from the port, if they were taken, put in the market, sold, be possible to recover. But most importantly, the crore report, mm. because there was, um, there is a forensic um, audit report. Before we we move, action, you know. Like everywhere, when you, you, you do undertake an audit report, action should, should continue from the report. It should not come from someone. So why did you, why did you do the, uh, the forensic audit? If it's then you, you put it aside and you do something else. Um, so uh, they, they, there was this forensic audit report by a reputable uh, international company. That's fine. They, uh, there are gaps there as to whose pockets 
um, has the money went to. This is an important issue to be clarified. Number one. Number two, the report identifies a half a billion that it cannot be accounted for. Where is that money? Then there are some assets. Then um, this um, is to be done. We, we are carrying too much what, what you have just said. Um, my country is in default now. So um, uh, there is no, um, uh, I mean, there's no more shithole that can go <laughs> than where it is now. <laughs> so the. Don't, don't be so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, um, so, from a civil society perspective, we cannot afford um, to waste this crisis to get things right. If we failed in the next five to ten years, we will be talking about um, something more serious in the country as to the state. Um, I mean, the level of uh, what's happening in the north. Uh, that we are talking about the about the revenues, right? But what is happening in the north? It puts question marks. Well, I think you should explain what is happening in the but, north. Uh, <laughs> in the north, um, where the, the gas uh, operations, this is all offshore, right? But in the area where uh, the infrastructure will be built, there are already um, insurgent activities there. A and there is no clarity as to who these people are. But the sentiments related to um, uh, the gas expectations, they seem to be um, part of what is happening there in terms of insurgents. And, and they are really people with uh, uh, guns. They are really uh, they are fighting. So um, with that happening, um, and this. Uh, nine solutions that we may be uh, finding um, to safeguard, um, so to say, um, the regime, because the option is clear. Um, we do the right thing or we save the regime. And, and I don't think uh, we can afford in the 21st century to make an option um, to protect a small elite and sacrifice uh, 29 million people. I respect very much the international lawyers. They, uh, they are very good. But, I mean, that's a country with a constitution that was violated. I don't think I really appreciate the, um, the, the comments by uh, solid nations that um, a poor country like Mozambique should be penalized by uh, actions undertaken um, by speculators 
um, who clearly knew that the laws were not properly being followed. One, two, it is not clear whether the uh, due diligence, the, inten the, the internal uh, procedures from the banks themselves, they were properly followed. If this is the case, and, and if you are in the 21st century, where there is so-called international community that is informed by the principles of human rights, and clearly there is a case of uh, action by uh, Credit Suisse that is clearly violating human rights. As I'm speaking here, um, people have no medicine in, in, in public hospitals. Evidence is there. People have no water. Teachers are not being paid. Mm. Nurses not being paid. Uh, this is a clear case of violation of basic rights of the people by an irresponsible action by a foreign <coughs> bank. And I think we should take it from that perspective. Mm -hmm. um, Claire, I wanted to comment. Just, uh, we are running over time, mm -hmm. and we also started late, but uh, <coughs> will, will you sit another five minutes, or is that okay? Yeah. Um, and I'm so sure there will also be time and uh, opportunity to, to stay in the room afterwards and to, to enter into more yeah, informal exchange. Yeah, uh, that's the best yeah. idea. So, yeah. uh, but uh, Thea, you wanted to comment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just a quick uh, comment. Uh, what you were saying about Credit Suisse, we've been thinking the same thing, that it's a, a paradox that the Norwegian pension fund is so heavily invested in Credit Suisse because it's been really a, a, a losing project for the last couple of years. And, and the fund has just uh, boosted their investments in Credit Suisse, so we're not really seeing the rationale behind it. Uh, but when it comes to <clears throat> what we were talking about, like the, the legal aspects and the political aspects, and and that the fact that the British courts have dropped the case, but but there's still an investigation going on in in U.S. courts, so, so there's still uh, one uh, one hope of uh, a legal uh, accountability. But uh, apart from from those national legal systems uh, where most bonds are issued under British or U.S. law, um, more generally globally. Uh, this uh, Mozambique as a singular case is just highlighting the fact that the, the global system for responsible lending and borrowing is very weak. Uh, and uh, uh, especially when it comes to the legal aspect, of course, but also when it comes to the practical and political aspect, uh, we have very uh, weak uh, institutions. There, there should be more of a global forum that uh, has the resources to put uh, take uh, all the parties, all the creditor and the credit debtor the, the country and come together for the uh, restructuring and there should be uh, more clear guidelines for responsible lending and borrowing and guidelines for restructuring. All of these systems are very weak and that puts countries in the, in the position where uh, if you uh, contest the legality of the loans or by any way uh, default on them, uh, it all backfires because it means that you will have no new investors, there will be no influx of foreign investment, etc. So, so in the end, uh, the country itself is the vulnerable party that is not being sort of um, um, yeah, they're in a very weak position, they have very few uh, uh, tools in their toolbox when it comes to a default, you're sort of in the checkmate.
Yeah. So uh, we we have to round up, I guess. Uh, I I want to try to be like a little tiny bit optimistic, and uh, like because it's a little <laughs> bit like damn if you do, damn if you don't. Like it seems like a kind of trap that is really difficult to get out of. Uh, but also, you know, I've been mingling with these business people these days uh, around the president's visit and all that, and. Actually, a couple of people were saying, um, well, first of all, they said Newsy, he was part of whatever happened in 2013 and 14, but he didn't himself see the consequences of what he got into. Uh, but, um, no, he was uh, like, he, but that was he one was thing. He was Minister of Defense. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. <laughs> but uh, no, yeah. I'm just. I'm saying this, no. but I'm just, you know, and somehow, okay, he's in deep shit, you know, they are in deep shit, and they might not find a good solution, but they might be, how do you say, I'm asking it, deterred from doing something similar again. So, it, like in the future, no? no? You don't think so? Okay, so, okay, so I see. <laughs> At least if they're getting off the hook this time, they're not yeah, going to be much like will, they, will they make another secret loan now? You know, it's just, just, and one more thing I just want to say, sorry. So, and they say, okay, the people who are like pulling the strings, they are still the ones that own the country, they fought for it in the bushes, um, so they feel entitled to kind of run the country. Uh, but what I heard was like, there is a new generation coming, like do you have any faith in the new generation that didn't fight in the bushes for the, for the country? Well, I don't know if there's an attempt to see something positive, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Dangerous. Uh, I, I mean, first of all, uh, let us try to make a comparative, uh, throw in a comparative perspective. And I think a very good there are two very good comparative perspectives. One is in relation to finding huge resources, and that is Angola. And we knew what happened in Angola. It meant enrichment for a small elite and it meant continuous poverty for the majority of the people. And the question is, and this is called the resource curse, and what we have now in Mozambique is what we, Oslak and I, we have borrowed this term from some British scholars, is a pre-source curse. You live on coming income that has not yet come. To talk Norwegian, that was said, Mm. And that's what they're doing. Mm. And secondly, if we're going to look at it from the political side, we can go to a neighboring country where they had a so-called transition uh, in uh, at the beginning of this year uh, from Zimbabwe. one Zimbabwe from one party state to another party state, and it was it was in reality a military coup, but it was in partly a new generation that came in. If we're going to look at the possibilities of change in Mozambique, I'm afraid that a possible scenario might be the same as in Zimbabwe. Mm. And I think that what is happening now, and that again has to do whether they manage to reintegrate the Renamo forces yeah. into, the, into the army, 
there will be a new force of military people that will have a real say in what is going to happen in the country. In a very good analysis of uh, the situation in Zimbabwe called Imo Mandasa, wrote two years ago about the militarization of Zimbabwean politics. I think also with the unrest in the north, we may see a militarization of the Mozambican politics. Mm -hmm. So this is part of my very pessimistic. <laughs> so wait, where, but, but is it, where is the little tiny positive? No, the little tiny, tiny hope is that, first of all, there is sufficient pressure from below in Mozambique mm -hmm. that things m will have to change, that Frelimo is running so scared about losing the elections next year that they might try to do something about accommodating some form of change and maybe the opposition will win the elections. Not that I think Renamo is so much better than Frelimo, but at least there will be a change. Mm. But I also think pressure from the outside is now absolutely necessary in order for Mozambique to avoid the resource and the resource first. And that means, for instance, that countries like Norway, Sweden, etc., will have to continue to pressurize instead of bowing backwards to the government. Mm. Mm. The very final question. Yeah. I've, I've seen Arne wanting to say something. Oh, okay. And he knows much more about Mozambique than any of us does, except for Adriano. Okay, so please. No, I just saw a general comment, and, and, and that is that I think what we're seeing as a general trend is the coming together of the political, economic, and lately also the security elites. And this is why it's so dangerous, because the ability of that kind of a national elite for maintaining and reproducing state capture is very difficult to break because they control so much of the resources that there isn't a lot left for the rest of society to, to fight from. Now, the nation state and the rule of law has sort of always been a middle class project. And I think the, the, real, the real hope is that the crisis in Mozambique becomes so great that the middle class is really going to react because there's no space for them. They're not able to produce, they're not able to, to, to breed. And I think that is what's going to really challenge a small elite trying to control everything. So the, the space for action, I think, is you know, civil society and the national bourgeoisie. We're sort of having to go back to the classic political economy analyses. But I also think that things like challenging the banks, because they do have rules. They didn't do the due diligence. They lent money to borrowers that were not according to their own rules and procedures. Of course you can challenge them on that. But the question is, who can do it? Because, and that is where we, as owners of the bank, as shareholders, have an obligation. And we need to challenge them, because that's the only way that's going to happen. But it, it has to come sort of from a, a middle class. We have the resource. We have a, a common interest in the rule of law. In the mm. world. Mm. And the elites don't. Yeah. And especially, I think we have a strong case pressuring them because uh, they were uh, initially asking for better, uh, they were asking the Bank of Mozambique to uh, yeah. give a go for the loans, and it never came, but the, the loan went through mm. all the same. So we have a quite strong case pushing them, I think. Mm. I, I think I want to let uh, Adriano yes. round up uh, with the. 
please try yeah. as hard as you can to see some positive uh, <laughs> <laughs> aspect of the future of the country that I love so much that runs through my blood. Yeah. I want to see good things happen. To no, uh, I, I, I have to be optimistic. Yeah. That's my country. Mm. Uh, I have uh, two children. Um, so I want um, the country to grow, but um, again I differ a bit with Prof. Um, uh, for what um, we have seen from past elections, um, and given that uh, Lakama is no longer there, Lakama is the um, yes, is no longer there. Yeah. Um, I see Frelimo for the sake of maintaining the their state. Um, I see them if the pressure uh, came from the middle class, saying. Um, go the Zimbabwe way. Zimbabwe way, I mean, um, uh, not the, uh, the transition from Mugabe to Mnangagwa, but under uh, um, um, uh, Mugabe uh, in 2002. Um, this is what um, they, Philemon um, uh, will not allow a situation where um, from within there will be the pressure uh, for the party to break. Therefore, um, my call would be uh, if anything is to happen, would be to put further pressure um, more globally and I believe um, that the very same way that there are banks with good lawyers, there are also good people. Mm. <laughs> uh, good people in Norway um, and everywhere. Uh, to put the pressure um, on Newsy. And, and Newsy is part of the system. He was the Minister of Defense. But he wants um, to protect his power, his power. Although he's part of the system, but he wants to protect his power. So if he, receives, he received further pressure, he would reach a point to say, sorry, I can't protect you anymore. You, you know what I'm saying? Mm. I can't protect you anymore. So he will protect his own position? His position. Uh, which means that he's pleasing the people instead of pleasing the party. Yes. yes. But now uh, he feels that um, globally he is supported. And in fact now he's supported uh, with the Western embassies. He's the good man, etc. He talks, he said nice things. But that allegiance between the president, my president, and Western embassies, the way it is, that it is not properly informed by the spirit of good governance. Mm -hmm. 
that is not. Um, so I think um, pressure should be put on him uh, to the point that he will say, I can't protect you anymore. I have to hand you in and allow the judiciary to work to recover some of the existing assets uh, and give that to, to banks and use that as um, uh, um, a form of agreement and to reduce the amount of, of gas to be mortgaged to release uh, part of that uh, to be channeled for the people. Thank you very much. I think that will be good.